an old man reaches down and slowly picks up the pen. His hand is weathered and worn, scarred from the burns that extend up his arms and onto his neck. His wrinkled face looks like it's seen many years on the road, hard ears of wind and rain and sun. But his eyes, his eyes are alive and alert. His mind is sharp and crystal clear, focused on the account he's about to write. He dips the quill into the ink and places it onto the scroll and writes three little words. In the beginning. Now, we have four accounts of the life of Jesus. Four uh, gospels, they're called. The word means good news. And the other three accounts we have of the life of Jesus are called the synoptic gospels, which means that they give us a synopsis of Jesus' life. It's almost like they drop into Jesus' life. Anybody remember camcorders? We don't really have them anymore. We have every, on our phones, right? But it's like a camcorder. Somebody's following Jesus around with a camcorder and exploring his life. And they kind of just drop us in to the life of Jesus. But John starts his gospel very differently. He says, I'm going to start by pulling the curtain back and I'm going to tell you all what it means. And so he pens these three little words. The, the words that are the beginning of the opening 18 verses of his gospel. This is a section of scripture that scholars call the prologue to the gospel of John. And we're taking three weeks. We're going to do a deep dive into these 18 verses, and then later in the year, uh, we are going to begin a journey through the rest of the gospel. I'm excited about that, and I'm not sure, maybe summer, but probably at the start of the school year, we're going to begin a journey through the book of John. If you were with us a couple years ago when we preached through the book of Luke, let me just tell you, this book is very different. In fact, 90% of the book of John is original to the book of John. It's, it's very different than the other Gospels. It's almost like at the end of John's life, as he's taught all over in these little churches, he's, he's established and, and people just keep bugging him. They're like, man, we have, because we believe the book of John was written uh, last out of the four Gospels. And it's like people just kept bugging him and said, we have Matthew, we have Mark, we have Luke, we have these accounts, and they're amazing. But John, the way you talk about Jesus your experience with him, your perspective, it's so deep. It's so powerful. John, please write your account. We want to hear and we want to have it recorded, your relationship with Jesus. And so inspired by the Holy Spirit, he picks up his pen and he writes this introduction that will actually set the context for everything he's about to write. Now, let me help you understand this prologue, what John is trying to do with this. And I want to do that by reading a couple um, prologues that I think you may recognize here. Let me uh, just cue this up real quick for this first one. You hear that? Okay. You got it? So here we go. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? Cue the music. It's the Star Wars opening crawl. Anybody see Star Wars in the theater? You're old. <laughs> like the original, the new hope. 
all of a sudden, all the young people's hands go down. I think it's awesome. Um, you know, my son, my kids, they're like, they love a movie from the 70s. I'm like, that's awesome. Um, everybody knows it, right? But this, he begins, Lucas begins by, by, you know, this opening crawl about an evil galactic empire and Princess Leia ra- racing home with the plans for the Death Star to restore freedom in the galaxy. And as Lucas begins his prologue, the opening call, crawl, he says, I'm about to, to show you a small story within a much larger epic story about defeating evil and restoring freedom to the galaxy. All right, I've got another one for you. We'll see if you recognize this one, ladies in the room. Here we go. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. And some of you, yeah, I see it out there. You're like, oh, Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen. <laughs> and yes, gentlemen, I may have watched that once or twice with my wife. Probably when we were dating, right? Because that's the kind of stuff you do when you're trying to win the heart of someone you love. But what is Jane Austen doing? She's setting the scene for Mr. Darcy to come into the story, right? And we're like, oh, oh, it's a love story. It's love. It's marriage. It's drama, 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 drama. (laughs) So that's what Jane Austen's doing. Well, John is doing this. He's saying, in the beginning, and he's saying the three years of Jesus' ministry that I'm about to cover are a part of a much larger account of everything that ever was and will be. And the words in this prologue will set the context for who we are as humans and for the darkness we find ourselves in and to the eternal solution to the dilemma. And so John opens his gospel with these words that would immediately take the readers back to the details, to the passage, the parallel passage that details the origins of everything. And of course, that's Genesis 1.1 where we see that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He says that the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters and God said, let there be light and there was light. And John, in these first three words that parallel Genesis 1-1, he reminds us about God speaking everything that is into existence, ex nihilo, from nothing. That God launches space and time. God sets the foundation of our seven-day work week. God, from, from formless emptiness, God fills the earth with everything that's in the earth. And then on day six, God creates his crowning creation, who would be his agents to lead and care for his creation, to enjoy relationship with himself. And in verse 27, we see these powerful words that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And this is such a powerful concept. And John, as he brings us back to Genesis 1, he's reminding us of all this, that man is made in the image of God, and that's such a huge concept. But part of that concept, part of the divine image, part of the concept behind the divine image, scholars believe, is consciousness. The fact that you're here pondering and thinking about these things beyond yourself. 
In fact, talking about the first verse of John. See, consciousness is something we don't really understand scientifically. And talking about the first verse of John, Dr. Uh, Jordan B. Peterson says this. He says, from the neurobiological perspective, from the scientific perspective, consciousness is not something that we understand. I don't think we understand it at all. It's something we can't get a handle on with our fundamental materialist philosophy, and I don't know why that is. He goes on, there is a miracle of experience and existence that's dependent on consciousness. People try to explain it away constantly, but it doesn't seem to work very well. And he goes on to explain or spell out some of the implications of consciousness that maybe you haven't really pondered before this. He says this, whatever, that is, whatever it is that is you has the capacity to experience reality and to transform it, which is a very strange thing. You can conceptualize the future in your imagination, and then you can work and make that manifest. What happens in the Old Testament, at least in part, is that consciousness is associated with the divine. And what happens in the Genesis account, just a few pages later, is the fall of humankind, where the very fabric of the universe is shifted it's, it's broken. It's, it's thrown off kilter. And you see in humankind the loss of innocence. You see the awareness of danger in the future. You see a consciousness of mortality. You see an awareness of a broken relationship with God and a constant fear of his displeasure. A constant question in, in the mind of humans of where do I stand with God? In fact, in ancient cultures, this, this question of how do we appease the gods, and it led them to do horrible things and sacrifice, like sacrificing children and, and harming themselves and giving beyond their means to sustain themselves. You see, this concept of the fear of loss enter our lives. In fact, I watched this music video. There's a song I've, I've heard over the past few months um, it's by a guy named Justin Bieber. You know, it's, it's called Anyone. Uh, you are the... Anyway, I won't sing it. Um, I can't dance like that either. But I watched the music video. I've never seen the music video before. And I, I watched the music video this week. And um, it's really actually, it's, it's kind of powerful. I actually, I, I can't lie, I choked up a little bit. You can have my man card later, guys, if you want. But it's this picture of him, like, battling it out in the boxing ring, but he's fighting for his wife. It's this cool, like, scene, right? But he says in this song a couple of lines that I think so accurately describe this thing inside of all of us that understands this fear of loss of the thing we love. He says this, because every morning I find you and I fear the day that I don't. You say that I won't lose you, but you can't predict the future because certain things are out of our control. And he expresses this idea that I think we all understand that the things we love the most, we can't hold on to. We can't hold on to. 
You see this thing enter at the fall, this, this disappointment, this self-disappointment, the experience of, you know, because God's given us this amazing ability to imagine a future and then to work towards this. And we think, wow, it's going to be amazing. But we've all experienced getting the thing we want and realizing that thing doesn't fill the void we thought that it would. Just think of your kids on the day after Christmas. We know the weight of shame. Knowing that we have potential that we never actually fulfill. Falling short of our own expectations. Wrestling with the fact that we have sin and darkness within us. And all of this is a very, very heavy weight to carry. And John is going to say, let me introduce you to the one who will help carry this weight. Let me introduce you to the one and let me bring you back to the creation to tell you about the launch of new creation, of new life, of the crashing in of a new era, of a new kind of kingdom that's coming, of real life, of life the way it was meant to be lived, of a restored relationship with God, of forgiveness of sins. And so he picks up his pen and he writes these three words in the beginning. And he brings us back. But the words he writes next will forever change our understanding of the nature and the character of God. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, at once, we know that we are entering a place which is both familiar And strange. And so John continues on in verse one. He says, In the beginning was the Word. Now, this is a deep concept. This is this comes from in Greek. This is literally in the beginning was the Logos. In 500 BC, there was a Greek philosopher named Heraclitus, and he was considered, he is considered the inventor of Western metaphysics. And he theorized that the universe is held together by logic, by reason, and he defined that as the word or the logos. And you, we, we understand that we can, we can observe scientific laws, the laws of physics, the laws of mathematics, that in this universe, two plus two equals four. We understand that. Th- that there's laws of morality that just seem like we share in common. Even atheists, let me illustrate it this way. Um, if, if you kick a puppy, everyone thinks that's wrong. Now, a cat, that's a whole nother story. We won't (laughs) talk about that. I need to give you an update on the most recent cat in our household. The outdoor cat. Let me just say it's not going well, guys. Um, But I don't have time today. But everybody understands there's certain universal moral things, a sense of right and wrong. Where does that come from? We understand that, that behind these things, there must be a cause. And John says, yes, in the beginning was the logos, was the cause. And let me tell you about that cause. In the beginning, he goes on, was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And so we see, man, in these two little verses... 
There are years of sermons packed into these two little verses. There's some very interesting things that he says about the logos, the word of God. Number one, the logos is with God. That is, he's distinct from God. And the logos was God. So distinct from God and yet was God, not in some sort of, and and so we understand that the logos is not some sort of um, kind of, abstract thing like you pray to the universe you just hear that all over like I just threw this out to the universe you know threw this out to the universe no he says the logos was with God in the beginning like before the existence of the universe was God was with God and then the third just incredible thing you see in here is that the logos is personal the logos is he he was with God in the beginning. And T. Wright puts it this way. He says, some spoke of the word as a kind of principle of rationality lying deep within the whole cosmos and within all human beings. Get in touch with this principle, they said, and your life will find its true meaning. Well, maybe John is saying to them, but the word isn't an abstract principle. It's a person, and I'm going to introduce you to him. And we see right here in the first two verses of the book of John that the word has a name. He has a name. And we will learn that name just a few verses down, the name of Jesus. And we see that you can know, you can love, you can have a personal relationship with the Logos, the word, the eternal God. A little while later, he'll say that the word became flesh. This is, this is the theme of the whole book. The word became flesh, and he became one of us, human. And in his name, in Jesus, you find life. And in fact, if you want to understand the one true God, you have to look very closely at Jesus. And so right in this first two verses of the scripture, we see just so many incredible things that, that, that the word was personal, that he was pre-existent. He pre-existed the universe, that he was co-existent with God, that he co-existed with God, but that he was also self-existent. And if you grew up in church, you know a, a complex theological term for that. It's the doctrine of the Trinity, And don't worry, uh, the Holy Spirit shows up very soon in this story, just a little later in this chapter. But the Trinitarian understanding of the Godhead shows up throughout the book of John, not hundreds of years later made up by the church, as, as some might claim. That's nonsense. It's right here from the beginning. In fact, all throughout the book of John, Jesus will say some shocking things. Some would say that that Jesus never claimed to be God. That's absolutely untrue. All throughout the book of John, Jesus says things like this. In John 17, give me the glory I had with you before the world began. John 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to try to kill him. John 5, it says, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And when you understand what, the way a first century Jew thought, it is crystal clear what Jesus was claiming as you read through this. Now, you probably knew that if you grew up in church. But what you might not know is that Jewish scholars 
around the second temple period, which began about 500 BC and went up through 70 AD when, when um, the temple of Herod was destroyed by the Romans, they began to read the scriptures deeply and they began to observe some very interesting things in our Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And they saw these things kind of like breadcrumbs leading somewhere. And they saw these things as leading to a concept. And, and these scholars began to conclude that the one true God was actually a plurality in one. Dr. Michael Heiser, a, a biblical scholar, says this, Jewish thinkers in the second temple period who were quite familiar with these patterns in the Hebrew text did not indicate that any of it violated monotheism. These are the same Jewish scholars who would multiple days, times per day pray the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He goes on, Jews before Jesus were thinking in Trinitarian terms that the one God of Israel was also three and that God would become human and die for sin as Messiah. As you study history, you see this. N.T. Wright tells us that the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God regularly acts by means of his word. Listen to a few things here. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens are made. The heavens were made. Isaiah 40 it tells us that God's word is the one thing that will last. That even though people and plants wither and die, the word of the Lord will remain forever. Isaiah 55 says this. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. That the word is powerful, it's effective. And you get this picture. Now, preachers, like we like to use that verse when we just blow it and have a lousy sermon. And it's like, oh God, well, your word won't return to you void. I hope you do something. Yeah, you've, you've sat through some of those, I know. But you get this picture from the scripture of this powerful concept of the word being, being something that actually goes out and accomplishes something. In fact, it's interesting, when the uh, Jews returned from Babylonian captivity about 450 years before Jesus, uh, they had adopted Aramaic as their native language. Aramaic is related to Hebrew, kind of the same way modern Italian is related to Latin. And so when they got back, they, the, during this time, the Hebrew scriptures that were written originally in, in Hebrew were translated and they were paraphrased into Aramaic. And they called this, this text the Targum. Now for us, you could understand that maybe as like the message translation of the scripture as compared to King James or, or um, the message is a paraphrase of, of scripture or um, maybe like the New Living Translation as compared to the King James. It was put in terms that they could understand. And the Aramaic word actually for the word of God is the word memra. And you see this phrase all throughout. It's fascinating. Here's what the Memra, the word of God, does in, throughout the Hebrew scriptures. In Genesis 3, it says, they heard the voice of the Memra of God. And the Memra called out to the man. So you actually see the word of God calling out to the man. It's fascinating. You see the word of God revealing the divine self. It says, and was revealed, Genesis 18, to him, the word of the Lord. 
You see the word of the Lord punishing the wicked in Genesis 19, and the memra of the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah. You see the, the word of the Lord actually leading and delivering the people of Israel. It says in Exodus 17, and the memra, the word of the Lord, was leading them during the day in the pillar of cloud. That actually this pillar of cloud that went in front of them is the word of the Lord. You see, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, it says, when the word of the Lord shall be revealed to redeem his people. Actually, this picture that the word of the Lord would come, would redeem his people. Let me just say, if you're interested in going down the rabbit hole on this, I've got a page on the website I put up. It's not, you go to our website, type in forward slash resources, and uh, I've got a couple article links, as well as a whole bunch of links from last week, from Easter weekend on the resurrection and investigating the resurrection. So if you're interested in that, check that out there. But the point behind all this, scholar J.C. O'Neill says this, there is no doubt that there were Jews before Christ who recognized that although God was one, he was also three. And John comes along and he says, let me tell you who that word is. Let me tell you who the word is. It's, it's Jesus. And he goes on in verse three to say this, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So you see this, this statement by John now that the word of the Lord, that Jesus is actually the causative factor of creation, the active factor in creation. That is God's heart, the heart of Father God says, let there be light that Jesus the word creates the light. As, as the, the planets and the universe were spoken to, into existence, Jesus creates. In fact, Hebrews 1 puts it this way. It says, through the Son, He, God, made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. And you see two things in this. You see both a creative aspect of the word of God and a sustaining aspect of the word of God. And this is so powerful because if you think about it, at the moment when they were, when they were hauling Jesus in front of Pilate, as they spit on him, as they struck him, as they whipped him and the blood drops flew, as they placed the crown of thorns on his head and blood dripped down his face. He was the very one holding them, their very substance, their cells together. It's powerful. As scholars, um, scientists study uh, quantum physics and just keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, you know, like atoms, quarks, all these things, right, as it goes down and down. Eventually, they get down to this thing that they don't really know what it is that holds the universe together. They call it the God particle, that there's this thing deep down beneath everything that holds it all together. And John would say, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, it's God, it's the word. He is the sustaining, not, not just the creative, but the sustaining person in the universe. 
It's the word. It's interesting when you think about words, this concept of the word and words. I think we observe some of the, some echoes of this idea of the creative aspect and the sustainative aspect of even in the words that we use, don't we? N.T. Wright says this, our words have a life which seems independent to us. When people hear them, words can change the way they think and live. Think of, I love you, or it's time to go, or you're fired. Simple words that change things. In fact, some of you, you, you got out of a relationship because somebody said, I love you way too awkwardly and way too soon. You're like, yeah, I don't think so. Others of you, you're sitting next to the person you love right now because at some point they said, I love you. And it changed everything. Jordan Peterson, again, he says this. This is interesting. When you speak, your speech is put forward in the world as a causal element. That words do something. In fact, James would describe it this way, that there's power in the tongue. You can light a forest fire, he says as a metaphor, with your tongue. You can ruin a whole bunch of things, or you can build up with your tongue, with your words. We understand this. In fact, there's this interesting thing. Uh, scientists believe somehow because your words are made up of, uh, of in sound, right? You know, as they cope past your vocal cords and these sound waves come out, that they never actually disappear. They dissipate, but they just kind of bounce around the universe. Interesting thought to think about. Words have power. Now, we don't have the capacity to speak anything into existence out of nothing, do we? Our words have power, but that is only in the original, the unique word of God. Have you considered that words can lead to relationship? You know, the only way you know what's going on in someone else's mind, typically, is if they open their mouth and speak words to you. Words are vital to relationship. In fact, um, I kind of, I'm an internal processor when I'm like struggling or trying to think through things or hard situations. And so I just clam up and I'll walk around my house just kind of clammed up and this drives my wife crazy. She's like, are you going to share your emotions with me? This week we had this conversation. Are you going to share your emotions? What does she want from me? Words, right? She wants communication. Words reveal the things that are in your heart and in your mind. And that's part of the whole concept behind Jesus as the word of God is that he reveals to us what is on the heart and on the mind of God. Commentator Frederick Bruner says this. He says, we long to know who God is and what God thinks and does in Jesus, his most personal word, God has spoken to us in the most human way possible, giving us his innermost thoughts and heart in deeds that are as profound as his words. And the believing human race has experienced deep help ever since. You see, our tendency ever since Genesis 3, ever since the fall, is, is when we think about God, to think of God as angry, upset, frustrated with me. In fact, even I think for many believers, you have this little voice in your head that I believe is the lie of the enemy that speaks this idea of, of God even being frustrated. Like, why did I even save them? 
Like somehow God didn't know, like, oh, he did it again? Why did I even save him? And it's this angry, frustrated picture of God. And into that, God sends the person of Jesus. And it's so beautiful as we go through the rest of this study later in the year. And you see this picture of Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. Or of the Pharisee who comes in the middle of the night, just like the guy that should know it all. And he's like, can you tell me how to find real life? And Jesus, you get this picture of warmth, of grace and truth. As Jesus speaks to these people, it's the word of God, his most personal word to us. Verse four, John continues, through him, he says. So now in him, in him, in Christ was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. You want to know where you find life and light? Look at Jesus. He is life. He is light. We used to go up to this cave, this tunnel up on the monument, and go through it in the middle of the night as youth, uh, kids. It's kind of fun. Usually, like, scare people in there, you know? But the thing is, you get back into that cave a little ways, and it's just pitch black. You're just groping around in the dark. And in that moment... You don't need something within yourself. You need something from without of yourself. And what is that? Light. And the point John is making here is light came into the darkness. It wasn't a light that you found within yourself somehow. It was a light that came from the true source of life. From outside, in fact, a, uh, a philosopher last century observed this, the solution to the riddle of life in space and time lies outside of space and time. And see, this is why this idea of the, the word who's preexistent is such good news for us, because from, from a secularist, secularist perspective, they're, they're really ultimately, when you trace it down to the origins, there's no logic, there's no me- reason, there's no meaning for existence. It's just blind chance. There's no, um, what's known in the Greek as telos. There's no end goal of life. And you see this philosophy reflected all over our society and the number of people that are hopeless, depressed, aimless, lost, in darkness. Now, the kind of a flip side of that is the New Age philosophy, which sort of says, well, there's divinity in everything. I'm God, you're God, the universe is God. And this also leads to hopelessness and a sense of despair ultimately. A scholar points out that if there's divinity in everything, also within divinity, there's divinity in hurricanes and cancer cells. And see, the message of the gospel is, no, there is light and life outside of us that came here to rescue us, that you need a savior from outside of you. You have a creator who is outside of his creation, but also intimately involved in it and who is actively working to bring in his creation an end that is the restoration of all he intended it to be. See, we need a savior. And we don't find that savior within ourselves. And the message that John wants to share is that savior, he came from without. 
and became flesh to give us the light, to give us the life. Colossians 1.15 says this, the sun is the image of the invisible God. We preached through this book a few years ago. It's really deep. He says, for in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. He talks about spiritual powers. All things have been created through him and for him. Ultimately, everything was created through him, but don't stop there, and for him. That purpose, that meaning is only found when you understand this, that you were created for him. And John's going to make this point so clearly in this book that life, real life, is only found in Jesus. See, if you think about this, it helps you understand why so often we are empty inside. Because we think this way all the time. Um, you, You find yourself saying, wow, if I could just, if I could just get, if I could just get two, if I could just get that job. If I could just graduate, if I could just get married, if I could just, you know, if we could just have kids, if I could just get that promotion, if I could just get that boat. And you get them, and it's great for a moment, isn't it? It's like, yeah. And then you discover soon that restlessness, that emptiness begin to crop up again in your heart and your soul and your mind. And that's because you were created for something different. See, your job was not ultimately created to be your ultimate sense of fulfillment. And when you're placing your worth and identity in it, all of a sudden things go haywire. Your marriage was not meant to be the thing that you, you drew ultimate fulfillment in. Author and pastor Matt Chandler uh, says this. It's not on the screen, but he says this. You weren't made to complete one another. It's like, sorry, Jerry Maguire. Remember that? The two things, show me the money and like, you complete me. Wrong. You weren't made to complete one another. You were made to go on this journey with one another, growing in a love for the beauty of Jesus Christ who made you for himself that powerful? Your kids, man, you love them, you delight in them, but they will never ultimately satisfy you. Parents, you're like, yep. (laughs) Learned that like week one when I couldn't sleep through the night for, for the next five years, right? That stuff you thought, man, it was great. First couple trips out to, to the lake, but then there's this bigger boat, this better boat. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. John goes on in verse 5 and wraps up this little introductory section this way. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines, and the darkness has not. And really, you get this idea that the darkness has not, will not, cannot. The light shines. See, up to this point, it's been all past tense. 
If you have a paper Bible, I want you to highlight, circle the S on shines. It's present tense, he's saying, actively. It's, it's, it's an active present tense. As John is writing this later in his life, thinking back on all the persecution of believers and everything that's happened and on Jesus' death, but then his resurrection, he's thinking the power of sin, it didn't defeat Jesus. No. Hebrews says we have an empathetic high priest that understands what we're going through. Do you think about empathy when you think of God? You should. It says he he was tested in every way that we are and yet without sin. But he gets it. He understands the struggle that you're going through. Death couldn't hold him down. Man, we celebrated that last weekend, didn't we? The powers, all the powers of Satan and the demonic realm could not defeat him. The power of the secular state, Rome, combined, come together with the power of the religious authorities couldn't defeat him. His light shines. The persecution of the early church couldn't defeat him. You're here 2,000 years later giving glory and honor to him. The light shines and he still shines. And this is good news for you and me today because no matter how dark a place you find yourself in today, his light still shines. He wants to meet you in that place. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it in abundance. Life, yes, life that goes on into eternity. But now that you would experience life the way that it was meant to be lived, with the peace and the joy in spite of circumstances. I love Young Life's motto. It says, you were made for this. You were made for this life in Jesus. And without it, you are restless. You are lost. You are empty. You are unfulfilled. And anytime you seek to find your source of identity and meaning outside of Jesus, outside of him, you live life aimlessly. And some of you, you're in that season right now. Yeah, you put your trust in him years ago, but he's the last thing on your heart and mind, and you feel that lost sense within you. In St. Augustine's Confession, one of the great fathers of the faith, he said this, you move us to delight in praising you, for you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. You know, at the end of his book, John is going to state exactly why he wrote it. He's going to tell us these things, the things I wrote. Jesus did all kinds of more things, but the things that I wanted to share with you are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. As Jesus was praying in John 17, He said this, now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You want to know where true life is found? It's not just being around religious things. In fact, there's this sobering little scripture in Matthew 27 where Jesus tells a bunch of people who were clearly very religious to depart from me because I never knew you. I never knew you. 
John says, you want to know where true life is found? It's in knowing God. It's a knowing that leads to loving. It was interesting, uh, Friday, Prince Philip, the royal family passed away after 70 years of marriage. And my wife has been really kind of nerding out on the royal family for a while. She watched the series, uh, The Crown, and then she started reading all these books. And she came in, she's like, oh, oh my goodness, Prince, Prince Philip just died. I'm like, whoa. And, and she was like, I, I'm actually kind of sad. I, I feel like I knew them. She's read so much about them. She's like, I feel like I, I know them. But you know what? They don't know her. And see, for some, you may have heard a lot of things about Jesus over the years and things about God, but you don't know him. You don't know him in a way that produces love for him in your heart and in your life. And John's message is you can know the one true God in a way that leads to life. A life now in abundance and stretches on into eternity. And think about this, as John wrote this as an old man who had suffered so much, as he, as he looks down at the scars on his arms from being boiled in oil, as he thinks about all his friends he's lost, you know, out of the original disciples of Jesus, he's the only one that didn't die a martyr's death. In spite of all that loss, all the pain, all the things he's endured as he pens these first words, I think you would see a profound sense of peace and joy on his face because he had the greatest treasure in life to know Jesus, to call him his friend. And John wants to invite you to know him, to understand him, to move into the light and to find life in him. So he begins with these five little verses. And I'm excited for the rest of the series, and I'm also excited to go through this book in John later in the year. Last summer, I began rereading this book and, and going, wow, we got to do this. And as I began to read it, I just felt this awakening in my soul, in my spirit. And my prayer is that over the next few weeks and then later in the year as we, as we go through it, that's my prayer for you as well. For some of you, that you would know him for the first time, that you would acknowledge that you are unable to make it to God on your own, that you are sinful, that you need to put your full faith and trust in what Jesus did when he died for you and rose again. You can do that today. That you need to turn your life to him and follow him. For all of you, I want you to know him in a much deeper way, a way that leads to loving him in a way you might never have thought was possible. And that in that, you would find real, true life.